You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode 29. We all have our fair share of difficult people in our lives, and I'm guessing we all have our own way, our own method of dealing with them. My guest in today's show is an expert in dealing with difficult people. Eleanor Shakiba is a communication skills trainer and coach, and she's taken a specific interest in helping individuals, teams, and organizations understand the motives of difficult people and how to deal with them. In the conversation you're about to hear, Eleanor helps us understand difficult behavior by categorizing it into three distinct modes. It helps us to recognize it and understand where it's coming from. And then she talks us through six toxic verbal patterns, how they rear their ugly head in the workplace. And then she coaches us through a considered positive and constructive response to each of them. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Eleanor Shakiba. Shakiba, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, Eleanor, and your topic of conversation is so interesting. I say that a lot at the beginning of my podcast, but this one is something that's relevant to everyone as much as we would like it not to be relevant to us. We all have to deal with difficult people from time to time. You are a communication skills trainer and coach, and you you do lots of coaching, corporate training, public workshops, team building, online courses, all that kind of stuff. I've seen your website. You have got a lot going on. But of all the topics you cover, is this one the one that resonates most with your clients? Absolutely. It's the one that has never changed. So I've been training since 1994 and there it is still the core of my business. So that just tells you that the need for this skill of being able to handle difficult people just doesn't die. That's absolutely right. And, and, and as you said, it doesn't change. Is that true that dealing with difficult people and the techniques of doing so will always remain pretty much the same? Yeah, I think the communication skills will always remain the same. What we're seeing now is that people get themselves agitated more by things like online comments and emails and things. And partly that's about self-management. Um, I'm often amazed at how people will upset themselves just by looking at a message that they didn't need to look at. And then they create this whole psychological thing for themselves. So the technology is actually causing more stress because it's easier for people to keep in touch. And if they're difficult relationships, you might really not want people to be keeping in touch in that way. So we're finding more reasons to be difficult. We're finding more ways of expressing our difficult sides. And if you think about it, the fact that you can flame people on the internet, that means that what used to be a private conversation now becomes a public conversation. So it's more shaming. And so what it does is escalate people's feelings. 
Yeah, right. And even the old style, the the emails and CCs of emails have been around a long time, but I've heard so many stories of things being inflamed because someone in an organization chooses to CC a number of people in on an email where they're giving someone a hard time about something. And as you say, that's that public shaming, but we'll get to the detail of all those things soon. I really liked your explanation I read somewhere about why you wrote your book, Dealing with Difficult People. And some of your clients, after you had been teaching the course for a long time, said, look, I'm interested in in why people are difficult. That's great. There's a lot of content on that. But what I'm most interested in is how to deal with difficult people. So that's Mm -hmm. what you've covered in your book, isn't it? That's right. So it's not so much about understanding why people get to that point. It's about what you do when you're faced with a behavior that is challenging for you right here and now. How do you stay calm? How do you respond? How do you de-escalate the situation? In other words, what words should be coming out of your mouth and what should you be doing to keep yourself in a state where you're not allowing the other person to upset you? And because if you let that happen, you are not going to be successful in dealing with difficult behavior. Fantastic. So what we're going to do today is we're going to talk well, you are going to talk through those really practical, easily implementable tips about dealing with difficult behavior. But I guess before we get there, we've got to take a a sensible approach to this and try and define what difficult behavior is. So can you define it for us? And I know that you think of difficult behavior in three different modes, don't you? I do. Uh, The general rule is that it's socially unacceptable behavior. So it goes past the boundaries of a polite conversation in some way. And what usually happens in that situation is that you infringe someone's personal boundaries through your own behavior. And there are three different ways that people commonly do that. So the first um, way is what I call fight behavior, which is really aggressive. It's shouting at someone or interrupting them or talking over them, or in some cases doing things like slamming doors or throwing things, depending on the situation that you're in. Um, I always remember a client who just sat there and calmly said, and so Frank threw his computer out the window and just carried on talking as though that was normal. And I said, well, hang on, I I don't think that's a normal behavior. I think that's a little bit of an aggressive response. What happened about that? And he said, oh, nothing. We got him another computer. Well, that's a real worry to me because that's the fight reaction out of control and being tolerated in an organization. That's a fairly clear example of someone who's in fight mode, right? Frank throwing his computer out of the out of the window. I guess that's a fairly dramatic example of that. What are some more subtle examples that we might see every day of that fight behavior? Someone who is talking over you or a boss who's highly critical all the time, doesn't ever give you positive feedback or a colleague who comes along and sticks their nose into your business and gives you advice when it isn't really wanted or hasn't been requested. And those are all forms of intruding on someone's personal space. And that's why I call them fight reactions. They're really about getting in someone's face and intruding on their space in a way that's really not acceptable. Fantastic. All right. What's next? What comes after fight? Flight. So that's the exact opposite. It's the person who runs away from conflict. Now, you might think that that's not really a problem, but it actually is because if someone is in flight mode, they won't raise problems. They will just let the problem get bigger and bigger. They won't speak up if they are feeling upset. They'll just do something like quit their job rather than saying, you know, there was something that was upsetting me. They may not talk up in meetings, so they might have really good ideas, but they're not expressing them to the team or to their manager. 
And so what happens when people use a lot of flight-based behaviour is that they come across as very passive, their creativity, their ideas and their contribution doesn't happen effectively. And sometimes they will actually contribute to things like workplace bullying by refusing to speak up or refusing to do anything about the situation. Uh, Very much this is a style of behaviour about avoiding having to have tough conversations. So on the surface, they might look very reasonable, but the problem is that beneath the surface, there is probably a lot going on and that is invariably going to come out at some point of time. So we're probably all familiar with the quiet person at work who suddenly has a temper tantrum. That is probably the person in flight-based behavior who's now finally been pushed to their limit and just switches into fight mode. You and I both do a lot of work with teams and we've seen the result of this kind of festering flight behavior. You mentioned someone might quit their job. That's a bad outcome, but it's probably not the worst outcome, is it? If it's if this kind of flight behavior is built into the team and in any number of members that can fester away and create real instability and a, and a certain lack of trust within an organization, and we know how bad that can be for productivity and, and morale. Yeah, and mostly it really impacts on whether or not people are able to come up with new ideas and solve problems and handle customer complaints, because if you're in flight mode, you're not going to actually sort the situation out. You're probably going to try and delegate upwards, as I call it. And that just ends up with the person who's the supervisor or manager getting all the big problems. And so you might as well not have the customer service team there from their perspective. So fight and flight. And and what's number three? I think I know where this is going. (laughs) Spite. And this is the one I invented, I suppose. I put the label spite to it because it's about being spiteful. It's uh, that attitude of cutting your nose off to spite your face. If I can't get what I want, then I'm going to misbehave so that you feel uncomfortable and I get my revenge and I make you miserable. Even if I'm miserable, that doesn't matter because I'm getting my own needs met and I feel like at least I'm getting to torture you. So it's the person who's sarcastic, Or classically in the workplace, the person who does things like sabotaging or going slow or backstabbing or gossiping, those are all examples of the spite-based reaction. You might have heard of this being called passive aggression if you've read much about dealing with difficult behavior or if you've read much about communication skills. But really, it's obnoxious behavior that's designed to annoy people. And if you work with someone who's in spite mode, you'll know that it can be exceptionally hard to handle. What's the psychology? I know that our goal here is not to necessarily labor on why people are like this, but to talk about what we can do about it. But it is interesting why people are like this. What's the psychology behind these three modes of of difficult behavior, especially that spite behavior? It's so actively vindictive and nasty and undermining the the atmosphere of the team or the organization you work in. What's behind that? Basically, it's a lack of personal power. It's feeling angry and wanting to speak up, but not knowing how to do that effectively. So we'll, we'll all have moments where we go into spite mode. But when you've got someone who's chronically passive aggressive, you've probably got someone who's got low self-esteem, who doesn't know how to sort out conflict, who isn't prepared to take the risk of having an adult to adult conversation And so they literally do act like a child because they know that it's going to get them what they want. So the psychology is pretty scary when you think about it. It's saying to yourself, I have such low self-esteem that I'm willing to damage myself in order to hurt you. And 
therefore is a very annoying behavior because it's not really easy to get someone who's stuck in spite mode to want to react as a adult in the workplace and to actually try and sort things out because they're actually getting something out of it. When they make you feel good or bad, they feel good. I read a great book a, a long time ago, actually, uh, The Consolations of Philosophy by an author, Alain de Botton. I, I'm sure I butchered his name there. And then later, quite recently, actually, I heard him on a podcast. I think it was the Tim Ferriss podcast. And he said something that stuck in my mind. He said that we very rarely see someone who is actually angry. That may mm. look like they're angry to us, but very rarely are we actually seeing someone who's angry. We're more likely seeing someone who is fearful or anxious or under enormous pressure. What you just described there about those who exhibit those spiteful behaviors, we can easily apply that idea to them. And I guess it also works for people who who show that fighting behavior. Chances are we're, we're not really seeing an angry person. We are, as you say, seeing someone who feels disempowered, who feels as though they don't have the type of influence in the workplace that they would like. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, anger is a strong emotion, but it's usually a translated emotion. So there's usually something beneath anger. Anger is very convenient because you can basically stop taking responsibility and say it's someone else's fault. I'm angry with you or I'm angry with circumstances. But the actual underlying feeling is often something like shame or embarrassment or fear or hurt. And those are the behaviors that really drive the fight or flight or spite reaction. So when someone is in psychological pain, they will express it as anger through spite reaction, or they'll express it as a rage full on temper tantrum if they go into fight mode, or they'll express it as just sitting there getting depressed if they're in flight mode. But beneath the surface, there's usually a really strong sense of something's going wrong, I'm in pain, I'm upset. And I don't know how to handle it. So you express that then as anger, but it's definitely not the actual root cause of the personal problem the person has. And I guess for us in working out how we deal with it, that's probably the first step, isn't it? Having the empathy to understand that even though this is difficult to wear, this is difficult to see and experience someone exhibiting anger-like behavior, chances are what they're actually telling me is that they're feeling anxious or embarrassed by what just happened or they're fearful or they're uncertain, all those kind of things. Exactly. And that's where you get this idea of responding to people with empathy or compassion and actually trying to understand where they're coming from. Now, I like that because then you don't get caught up in the anxiety and the negative feelings because you're taking a step back and you're looking at them and you're saying, what's going wrong for this person that they're behaving like this? Now, I'm not saying there that we're excusing them. What I'm saying is if you recognize that there's something going wrong and you can deal with that issue, of course, they're going to not need to be difficult anymore. So this is nothing about making excuses. What it's about is saying there will always be a trigger event or an issue that is driving the behavior. So if you can assess what's going on and make a really good analysis of what the problem is, then you'll be able to sort it out and the person won't need to use their difficult behavior anymore. Let's just go one step further with the mindset of, of a person who's exhibiting difficult behavior and one-offs are okay. They can be embarrassing. We will all lose our cool from time to time and say things that come out you know, in a way that doesn't represent who we really are. But what about someone who's exhibiting a pattern of these type of behaviors over a long term? What's going on in their mind? Are they 
they find themselves doing things like we all do that they're not proud of, but it happens so regularly, they, they almost have to keep going with it and, and make that part of their workplace persona. I'm, I'm just guessing here. How, how does that play out for people who, who show long-term behaviours? Well, often what we've got is a long-term psychological problem. It's not normal to be in pain all the time. But if someone's having a rage reaction, and often you'll find that they happen regularly, so you could almost say every three weeks this person has an explosion, what's happening there is a deeper psychological level problem. Now, you can't fix that in the workplace, and this is where we start to get into some mucky territory because you can't actually fix the person's psychological problems. But what you have to do is minimise the impact on you. And that means being able to do what's technically called setting boundaries, to refuse to tolerate the behaviour if it's impacting on you and causing you stress, to be able to stand up for yourself, to be able to set limits, to walk out of the room if someone is having a temper tantrum, but to do that in a way that keeps everyone safe. So when you've got a chronic problem like that, the question becomes not how do you stop the person doing it? Because in the workplace, you may not be able to. It becomes how do you manage yourself so that their behavior doesn't impact on you negatively? In your book, you describe six toxic verbal patterns. I want to talk through each of these and and you've Mm -hmm. also outlined some responses to those, things that we could take on board to respond to those toxic verbal patterns. But before we start talking through those, how do they link to your three modes of difficult behavior? What's the link between these? Each mode does the toxic verbal patterns, but in a different way. Um, So there's a different way of expressing it. But what's happening with each verbal pattern is that it's creating an intrusion on that personal zone in some way. And so all that happens is that you hear a slightly different version of it coming out of the difficult person's mouth, but you will still have the same basic pattern happening there. So the first of your six toxic verbal patterns is verbal intrusion on your personal zone. Tell us what that is and and what your recommended response to that is. So that is the person who does something, let's say, like asking you an intrusive question that you don't feel like answering or, in fact, sometimes physically coming up and touching you or moving things on your desk. So it's about going into your space in a way where you're not comfortable And most of us don't know what to do about that. And that's often something that you'll see when people make a claim of harassment in the workplace, that they feel like other people have come up and made comments that were too personal, or they've made questions that they really didn't feel comfortable answering. So what you need to do with that, most people don't feel comfortable about, is actually say, look, I don't feel comfortable answering that question. I'd prefer if we talked about something else. And that's what we call an iframe message. So basically, it's not saying you're a nosy so-and-so. It's saying I don't feel comfortable discussing that sort of thing. So it ends the conversation, but it does it in a way that's not going to attack the other person. And it does it in a way that is respectful. So the key is to start that sentence with I. You put it on yourself. I don't like that. I don't feel comfortable. I, I don't like it when you come and ask me those type of questions rather than say, you are a rude person or you're intruding on my personal space. You kind of own the message, make it out as it's the problem is in your response, but I'm very clear about what I don't want anymore. Yeah. So you're not blaming anyone. You're just Mm. saying, this is a limit. I don't want to talk about that. Uh, Let's change the subject. And you just do it in a very low key way so that you're not going to escalate things. A lot of people really struggle with using I statements because they want to 
put a you in there somehow. I don't like it when you shout at me. That's very different to I don't like being shouted at in front of the team. We're trying to neutralise by just giving a very clear, objective description of what's going on. Ah, uh, you've cleared me up too there. I think even in my really lame examples before, I, I put a U in there somewhere. I started the sentence with I, but I, I threw in the U and that's the mistake. I like what you said then. I don't like being shouted at in public. Nothing to do with you, even though you're the one that just shouted at me in public, but yeah. I don't like it. Okay, that's great. Thank you for clarifying that so nicely too. You didn't say, David, you're wrong there. That was a terrible example. You just gave me a better one. And as you said, these type of intrusions on your personal zone often lead to complaints in the workplace and and then that whole series of events that can take place after that. But if people were to better able to frame these iMessages, that might squash some of those issues before they grow and fester. Yeah. In my book, I talk about using flame-proof language, you know, language that doesn't cause things to explode, that doesn't spark a conflict. I think it's really important just to see it as this is an issue. You obviously have a different understanding about how we communicate. I don't like it and I'm not going to play that game, but I'm not going to make you wrong for doing that. So I'm just going to honestly and appropriately let you know what my limit is. You said that each of these six toxic verbal patterns are played out differently by the fight, flight and spite modes. So Mm -hmm. I like that. I, I get that. Help me understand, how would someone whose difficult behaviour is around the flight mode, how would they intrude on your personal zone? I can guilt see it trips. easily in flight and spite. Okay, guilt trips, right? Mm, yeah. So basically, oh, you never come and visit me anymore. Or, oh, I don't, I've got too much work. Just putting it out there is something that you're supposed to pick up and feel guilty about. So I'm sure many people in their lives have this person the one who sits around and doesn't do much work and then complains that they're overburdened and other people come and rescue them. Well, that's a classic example of the verbal intrusion where you've managed to get into the other person's head and make them feel seemingly a sense of guilt. In fact, the person themselves can choose not to by just throwing it back and saying, look, I don't have time to pick up on this. I think you'll need to go and find someone else to help you. And I can hear in these conversation how proactive in a workplace taking this kind of advice is because you're not enabling the type of behavior that you just described. It's tempting for us all to enable it by letting it go and helping them when they they feel drowned, which becomes ever more regular because we've enabled that behavior and it's self-perpetuating, isn't it? Whereas your examples here and your suggestions are kind of cutting the behavior off at the chase so that it doesn't fester and, and become a greater problem. Exactly. And I just wish more people did this stuff early. In fact, I often think that the people who are in flight mode are the most powerful in organizations because by being really passive, you create a space that other people fill and step into. And so often people who are just very passive get away with not doing very much themselves because other people come in and play that rescuer role. If you want to inject some energy and leadership expertise into your next event, why not invite David to speak? He'll get things moving. So the second of those six toxic verbal patterns is heart-head mismatch. Tell us what that's about and, and your response. So this is the difference between the person who makes decisions logically and the person who is values-based and relationship-based. So What happens when people are trying to make decisions? 
is that we go to one place or the other, the head or the heart. And this causes us to think other people are stupid or other people are too soft and it causes conflict. So it's about being able to really listen and hear whether people say things like, how do you feel about this, which means they're coming from that heart place, or what do you think about this, which means that they're coming from that head space, and then responding and empathising from where they come from. So a lot of people have heard of reflective statements where you feed back what the other person has said. My suggestion is you need to do that in a way that reflects where they're coming from. So if someone says to you, uh, there's been a change to Project X, we need to look at staffing levels, they're being very logical. So you come back and say, so you think that we need to review the staffing levels of Project X. But if they come to you and go, I can't believe it, Project X has had the timeline changed, we don't have enough people, I'm stressed out as it is. Well, that's a really different message. It's about the same thing, but it's coming from a heart place. So you need to respond, not by going, oh, so you think we need to change the schedule. You need to actually empathize with the feelings and come back and say, you're feeling really stressed. You don't know how to go about getting Project X delivered on time. Let's talk about that. This is a really great one because it probably doesn't come naturally to do that, to hone in on whether the person you're speaking to speaks from the heart or their head and then match where they're coming from. It's probably far more natural for us, if we're a head person, just to give them a response as you think, rather than try and match where they're coming from. Is that true? Is, is this one of the ones that you've got to be really specific and diligent about paying attention to? If you are a head-based person yourself, it is harder, whereas you'll find the feeling-based people, because they're responding to people's states more accurately, have less problems with this. I often find that it's people who are in highly head-based professions that struggle the most with trying to learn how to do this. And they will sometimes even say to me, well, why should I relate to someone's feelings? It's their own problem. Well, the only reason you should or you might get benefit from it, is that it's going to calm the situation down and get you to a better resolution faster. All right. That is that is a good observation. Very, very good. That's a, that's a really handy one. And, and as I saw it, it would be the sort of thing that I would need to be really conscious of, of remembering to do at the right time. So that probably tells me that I'm coming from a head kind of a direction. And if mm-hmm. someone's coming at with me with heart kind of feeling statements, I would I would need to remember to do that. And as, as you said, that's something that, that head-based people really struggle with. That's a good bit of advice. Eleanor, what about the third one, baiting? Baiting is where you throw a comment out there to try and get the other person to get into a fight. So you might ask a question, what were you thinking when you did that? Or you might make a sarcastic comment or you might do a poor me sort of show But what we're really trying to do when we're baiting is get the other person to do something very specific, to respond to us. So if we're baiting into a fight and we come up and start arguing with what someone has just said, we're actually really hoping that they're going to come back and argue with us so we can escalate the whole scene. And so what we're doing when we're baiting is expecting a predictable response to what the other person is to um, from the other person. And this can be a really tough one because it's so easy to get baited and then realize, oh, I shouldn't have responded that way. So you really have to focus on calming yourself down and coming back and feeding back to the person the impact of their behavior. So not giving them the the response they're expecting by baiting you, but instead doing what? 
So you could, I always say, just do anything else, do anything unexpected. But there is a statement formula that I use in my book called Wish, where you actually feedback the impact of what they're doing. So you could say, when you interrupt while I'm talking in meetings, it causes the team to get off track. So what I'd like to do is talk about how we can work together more effectively during meetings. How do you think we could manage things so both of us can be heard? And I imagine that probably stops a lot of people in their tracks because it's quite an out there behavior to start with in the workplace to actually bait someone. So I imagine being almost called on it fairly directly by someone who's confident in their way they're speaking would stop most people in their tracks, right? Yeah, because actually baiting is very often used by passive aggressive spite-based people. And so they actually don't like having honest face-to-face conversations. Their whole behavior is designed to avoid doing that. Mm. So it can be really effective just to set that boundary. A lot of us feel uncomfortable doing that because we're scared that the other person will escalate into aggression. And I just say, well, make another Mm. statement. Come back and put a limit around that second behavior. It's not as though I'm giving people a magic formula. One sentence will fix everything. What I'm saying is that if you have a toolkit, you're going to be able to be flexible enough to respond to anything that other people do. Why is it okay to use you in your response to someone who's baiting you, but not back at the the number one toxic pattern, which was when they invade your personal zone, you talk about iframe messages. Why is it different in those two situations? It's just different because wish is actually a feedback statement. Um, So it's actually literally about showing the person their own behavior. So it's actually more useful in that situation to give them a specific example of what they've just done. So you'll find that although you can neutralize it and avoid saying you, it's often helpful to make it real for the person to say, you just did this and this is how it impacted. So it's a different formula for a different sort of setting. So you're really calling them out on that behavior, aren't you? Yeah, you are. You can Obviously, it doesn't have to be really direct because you could see this as being a starting point for a conversation. And you can also use wish statements to give positive feedback as well. So we wouldn't only use these statements in difficult situations, but it is very handy to be able to be very clear about what it is exactly that someone has done, what their behavior is. And that's why you'll find that when we're handling baiting, we're actually breaking it down to the specific words that they spoke or the specific way they raised their eyebrow, and we're feeding it back to them. And it's pretty hard to do that without saying you. I really like number four. For some reason, when I read it, I I felt as though, and correct me if I'm wrong, this would have to be up there with the most common kind of toxic verbal patterns. It's perceiving problems as a personal attack is... Am I right? Is is this really common or is it only as common as the other five? Oh, no, it's massive. (laughs) So many people have not learned that a problem is just a situation that needs to be fixed. And Mm. so instead what they do is they do things like taking feedback personally and bursting into tears or becoming highly defensive. Mm. And all that's happening is perhaps that their manager has asked them to make some changes to a report that they wrote. So it's really about how far in we let information. Do we take information that's meant to be about our behavior, but do we then take it in and generalize it to our entire personality? If we do that, then it's going to sound like an attack. So I talk in the book about different levels of your personal style or different levels of yourself, how there's the inner part that no one else gets access to. 
Then there's the intimate part, which is where you have conversations with your friends and families. And it's a different style of conversation because you give out more about your personal selves. But then in the workplace, there's the professional zone. And that's the zone of talking about people's behaviors, not about their personalities, not about their opinions, not about their rights to do things or not do things. It's just about personalities. So tell me about this flame-proof language. Help me understand what that's about. That's your suggested response to people who perceive problems with work as personal attacks. Your response is flame-proof language. All right. So that's keeping it neutral. So instead of saying something personal, we just bring up the issue in neutral terms. So let's say you have a colleague who sits next to you and they talk really loudly on the phone and that's interrupting you. If you came up and said, you're so selfish, you're always talking loudly, can't you see that other people are trying to get things done? That is not flame-proof language. Flame-proof language is allowing the person to hear what's going on. So saying something along the lines of, I've noticed recently that I'm being distracted when you're on the phone and I'm trying to write reports. I'm just wondering if we can talk about how we can work together successfully so that you can have your conversations and I can be undisturbed while I'm trying to do these reports. So it's just allowing the person to see it as a problem that is about circumstances, not about them. It takes a lot of courage to do these things that you're suggesting. They make perfect sense and and I can see on a rational level, why they work. But it takes so much courage when someone's exhibiting, you know, that type of behavior that you were, you just described there to stand up and say, hey, when you do that, it has this kind of effect. I'm, I'm wondering if we can work out a way to get this report done more effectively. That's, that's courage, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's also what I call appropriate honesty. There's a big difference between being honest and being appropriate about that. And this is, I think, why people get concerned. They feel like if they're honest, people are going to see them as being aggressive. Well, that will only happen if you choose the wrong words. If you choose neutral words, it's much more likely the person will just see this as an issue. The issue is actually probably a badly designed workspace rather than the person and their own um, volume of voice. All right. Now, you know, and as you talk, I can't help but thinking that this entire topic is underpinned by emotional intelligence, isn't it? The lack of emotional intelligence on behalf of the person who's exhibiting the difficult behavior and the emotional intelligence it takes from us to respond to it correctly. For, for those of you who are new to the idea of emotional intelligence, that's those, those components of, of being smart about the way we interact and conduct ourselves. Things like being self-aware, aware of the impact we're having on others and having self-regulation, being able to control our emotions, behavior appropriately. It's uh, things like being motivated by, by things that are productive and useful to your team, your organization, or your family. It's about having social skills to bring people along with you on the ride as well. And of course, the last one is about having empathy, the, the ability to see the world through someone else's eyes Is it true when I say, Eleanor, that everything we're talking about is made either easier or harder by having or not having high levels of emotional intelligence? Absolutely. All that um, emotional intelligence is about is being able to assess what's going on for you and for the other person and make wise decisions about how to carry a conversation forward. 
And it's about having the micro skills of being able to manage your own state of mind, your own feelings and your behavior. And that's all that's involved in handling difficult behavior as well. Number five on your list of six toxic verbal patterns is interpreting difference as a threat. Tell us about that. So that's the one where you see someone else who has a different opinion to you or a different set of values or a different set of beliefs and you decide that they're the enemy. And human beings have been doing this as long as we've been getting into groups. So it's about seeing the fact that someone is different to you in some way as being scary and frightening and therefore something that you need to go and attack around. And it still astonishes me in the workplace, the number of people who are not prepared to just accept we've got different values here or we have different opinions about how to do this project. That's not really a threat. That's just simply a reality of the fact that human beings are different, we're diverse, we're creative. And so, in fact, we're interesting because of those differences. So really, to me, interpreting difference as a threat is at the heart of conflict. If you can understand that it just shows the other person is unique and so are you, then it gives you lots of opportunities to sort things out with the other person. And don't we see this play out on so many levels through society, in the workplace, of course, which is what we're specifically talking about today, but we see that played out politically as well. Absolutely. It's what territory and war and all of those things are all about. It's about saying, this is my zone and anything that happens outside of that zone is threatening. So I'm going to try and attack it. And your suggested response to people who interpret difference as a threat is accord statements. What's, what's an accord statement? So an accord statement is where you find something that you can agree with in what they've said. So let's say someone came up and shouted at you because you'd made a mistake. Instead of saying, how dare you shout at me, you'd turn around and go, yeah, I agree. This is something that needs to be resolved. Let's sit down and work it out so that the mistake doesn't happen again. So you actually start with words of accord like yes, or I agree, or I understand where you're coming from. And then you lead into generalizing the problem and using that flame-proof language that we talked about earlier. So instead of attacking back, what you're going to do is try and build a bridge across to where the other person is coming from. Now, I'm sure this plays out in many different ways in the, in the workplace, but I'm thinking of it from the point of view of, say, different generations in the workplace. At the moment, the workplace is being shared by millennials, Gen Xs, and baby boomers. And there's a lot of difference in the way that those three generations see the world, if if we allow ourselves to stereotype wildly. And Mm. I'm imagining there's a lot of differences that millennials are bringing to the way they do their work that, say, baby boomers especially are seeing as a threat. Maybe it's the use of social media to do work rather than the old methods of maybe email or phone calls. Perhaps it's around the language that they use as well. So we may be seeing those generational differences as a threat when really they're just different. And and a switched on emotionally intelligent person might deal with that by saying, hey, look, I see that you've done this work differently to the way I would have done it. But what we, we were both trying to achieve here was, you know, good correspondence with the client, whatever it might be. So we've got that in common. Now let's talk about the, the differences in the way we both would have delivered that work. Exactly. And it's just about building together a way to actually bring both perspectives and do a good job. And so it is all about finding where you have something in common with the other person rather than seeing them as being the enemy. 
when you take this approach, it's amazing what you find out about people because you're actually opening yourself up to having a deeper conversation and finding out more about them. And yet when someone annoys us, the last thing we feel like doing is looking for something in common because then we might be telling ourselves that we're similar to them in some way. And that can be a frightening thing for some people. And again, that element of an emotionally mature person really comes to the fore here, doesn't it? That ability to have self-control is like, oh, I'm really threatened by this. This is really different. But hang on, my self-control allows me to deal with this productively and, and look for a solution. And, and along the way, as we go through a solution, we actually will, will learn a little bit more about each other. And you know, this, this relationship will be improved because of this situation. Your very yeah. last... The last of your six toxic verbal patterns is perceptual distortion. Tell me about that. So that's where you see something differently to someone else. So in a way, you hallucinate information. We've all done this. Just recently, I was working with a virtual assistant um, on Upwork, and I'd given them a deadline the 26th of June. And I was going, why haven't they given me anything yet? And I was getting really (laughs) upset. And she had read it as the 29th. And it was just as simple as going, look, I was expecting stuff by today. Where is it? Um, In order to uncover that. And that's what we mean by a perceptual distortion. It's just seeing things in a different way to how they really are. And it's just a natural part of the way the human mind works. We're distorting all the time. The problem is where we distort in ways and then make up stories that create conflict. So you see your colleague playing with their phone while you're doing a presentation and you start making up a story. They're out to get me. They're probably emailing the boss to say that they don't like the presentation. They're probably aiming to get my job. So you read a whole range of different meanings that are not validated by the actual facts of the situation. That's what perceptual distortion is all about. I had a really interesting situation with a team I was working with once who were working through a lot of problems, a lot of personality problems through the team. And and the leader who was seen by some as the hub of those personality problems was sitting there doodling while they were talking. And um, there were people pouring out their heart, saying some of the stuff that really needed to be said for this team to move forward, people taking a big risk in their honesty. And they would look at their leader and, and see that person doodling while they were talking. And of course, they interpreted that as, oh, he's not even listening. Whereas when we scratched the surface a little bit, we learned that he knew very well for himself that in order for him to listen properly, he needed to keep his hands busy. So the the act of him doing that doodling and creating these, these masterpieces on his page with his pen was actually him really tapping into what they were saying so he could listen properly. It was a perceptual distortion at its best. Absolutely. Although I have to say as a leadership behavior, it's not necessarily the best way he could have chosen to uh, keep his hands occupied. So it's quite interesting you gave him that feedback because that's what you need to do in a perceptual distortion situation. And he might decide to do mind maps of what people are saying next time. So it looks like he's actually listening to them rather than drawing something that's unrelated. So Eleanor, all of this is fantastic. And we've talked about the kind of courage it takes to respond in in these really sensible, planned ways to flex our emotional intelligence and and show some self-control and some self-awareness and some empathy so that we can actually fix these problems rather than contributing to them or, or help make them better in the workplace. 
As you coach people, as you train organizations and, and run your workshops, what are the greatest barriers for people actually implementing these ideas? Because I'm sure while you're running those workshops, people are sitting there going, yep, that's a great idea. Yep, I've seen that behavior and that's a really great response. Awesome. But I'm equally sure not everyone in your workshop goes back to the workplace and executes perfectly. Absolutely. And usually it's the people who actually don't want a solution. So often people will be sent to training of this nature and they're getting something out of their own behaviour. So willingness, willingness to change is a really big part of this. Willingness to try things out and also being smart and practising in small situations so you've learned the skill before you try it in big situations. Uh, So I've had so many people who've written to me and said, I went and I tried this thing and it was fantastic. It really did help. But they're the ones who have the right attitudes in the first place and have practiced during the course, have probably practiced afterwards. And they get themselves into a place where they have enough skill and confidence that they're able to carry out that difficult conversation. So I always say, don't go back and pick the person you've been at war with for five years as the first person to try your iframe messages on, because it's just not going to work. You need to have practice, you need to feel confident, and you need to be skilled. Absolutely. The idea of practicing this is at the core. And you've talked about an individual who might have success with this because they go back and practice. And and as you say, your advice is don't go and practice on the most difficult person in the workplace. So, you know, get some miles, get some runs on the board with some easier situations so that you get good at delivering these messages. What about teams or organizations as a whole? How have you seen teams or organizations successfully take these on board? What steps have they taken? Well, often what happens is the team comes along to training together, and that's fantastic because they get a common language and they can give each other feedback. So the first step is actually making sure everyone's on the same page about the techniques. And then secondly, actually catching each other using the techniques and giving each other feedback giving each other positive, affirming feedback so that when you catch someone doing something good, you're actually recognizing it. And then perhaps teaching skills to debrief the team. So if something has gone wrong, it's not a matter of, oh, it's all the customer's fault or it's all that other department's fault. It's saying, what could we have done using our communication skills to get a different result that was better to the one that we got? So it's about teaching people how to debrief and be solution-focused and to think about their learning as an ongoing process rather than thinking that you're going to come to a one-day course and learn how to magically transform your lives. Well, I wish it was that easy, but it's not. It's about learning how to learn together and it's about creating the environment where people can try things out and be praised when they get things right and get some ideas and suggestions on how to improve so that feedback is a continuous process. You said so many interesting things there. I I love what you talked about, the team coming together so they get that shared language. That's a key word there. They, They know what they're talking about. They've got a language that can quickly pinpoint big ideas because they share that language. The other thing is actually going back to the workplace and applying it and then giving each other feedback on how they're applying it those are really difficult things to do because they're quite unnatural and they take you away from the busyness of your day-to-day work. But if you want to make changes in in any kind of behavior, but we're talking specifically about this one, you've got to really explicitly implement them and then talk about them, don't you? Yeah. There's that whole cycle of learning where you can't get skilled at something without going through making mistakes and receiving feedback on how you could have done better. 
And that's why it amazes me that so many people get threatened by feedback because feedback is just this wonderful opportunity to notice how other people perceive you and to get some ideas and suggestions around what you could do to go from good to great. You don't have to see this as a criticism. What it's about is helping you to get better at this wonderful, sophisticated skill called communication. You mentioned the learning process there. I was thinking the same thing. You know, we've all been to so many training sessions or seminars or workshops or even just great talks, and we get excited about the ideas and the things that we're hearing. But of course, that's only the beginning. So often, workshops or educational experiences in general go to waste because when we're at the workshop itself, we're learning new terms and new ideas, but that's never going to stick unless we work through Bloom's taxonomy. Bloom's taxonomy is an order of learning. The, the very bottom is knowing and, and remembering what we've learned. The next step, of course, is applying it. And then the next step is analyzing it. And that's when you were talking about people giving each other feedback in the workplace. And we just move higher and higher up this Bloom's taxonomy. And the higher you get, the more likely you are to remember this and add this new concept as part of the way that you really communicate or behave or do business or whatever it is that you're learning. Working through Bloom's taxonomy is so vital. There are so many times where we go to a great event and are excited about ideas, but if we don't apply it, we don't talk about it, we don't analyze it, we don't synthesize it with other things that we know, then it's just eventually going to evaporate from our memory and, and it will be like we never went. Exactly. And that's why I'm actually a big advocate of coaching because I believe people learn faster and more effectively when the learning is um, really focused on their needs. But secondly, where you're able to try things out with your coach and practice and get honest and appropriate feedback. And I genuinely believe that if you want to be a successful communicator, you should never stop being coached because there is always something that you can do better. So I've worked with the same coach myself for, I don't know, since about 1994. We can't remember how long the relationship has been there. But I am very much an advocate of saying, if you want to be masterful at communication, you've got to take it seriously and you've got to be willing to open yourself up to feedback regularly. And a coach really holds you up that higher order of learning, doesn't it? A coach stops you from slipping back down to the point where you've got to try and scratch your head to remember it. What are those terms again? That comes naturally now because we're holding ourselves up at that applying and analysis stage of of the learning process. Hey, um, Eleanor, what's our goal with difficult people? Is our goal when we're dealing with someone in the workplace who does all of these things or some of these things that we've talked about today, is our goal to nullify them and stop them from being difficult? Or should we be optimistic enough to think that we could go past nullifying their behavior and actually helping them to get to the point where we've got a productive relationship in the workplace? Yeah, well, it's actually easier in the workplace because the goal of communication in the workplace is to have a productive team that is effective and that is displaying appropriate workplace behavior. So in many ways, it's much easier to handle difficult behavior in the workplace than it is at home or in your personal life. And the goal of these sorts of conversations really is to work out how we can work together in a way that helps everyone to be themselves and to end up being able to collaborate, find solutions together and get things done in the workplace. So it's really about being what's called solution focused and being able to build a collaborative team. 
You touched on there what was to be my next question. Everything that we've spoken about today is fabulous for the workplace, highly applicable. Hopefully we won't need to use it, but we all know we probably will. But it's just as applicable in our social and private lives, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think where we really get ourselves into trouble can be that we take it more personally when it's in our social or our personal lives. So sometimes and it stops really... us from being able to respond in that rational, planned. Exactly. So we don't take that step back. We don't think about what our boundaries are. And especially with people like family members where you've actually literally primed each other's buttons up. You're not just mm. pushing them. You put them there in the first place. It can be really hard to start to change your behavior because the other people in your family are going to try and get you to go back to the way you were because that's what they're used to. So it's about recognizing that sometimes creating that change can mean working quite hard over quite an extended period of time to change those patterns of behavior. So the principles are the same. It's just that in your personal and social life, there's more emotion attached to it. So it can be a bit more difficult. Absolutely. And it's about thinking of your family as a system that just keeps on running and you're trying to change the whole system. You're not just trying to change yourself. Eleanor, perhaps a touchy one, perhaps an unintelligent question I'm about to ask, but is there a difference in males and females in the way that they either show fight or flight or spite behaviours? Is there a pattern there related to gender or not? Not so much related to gender, but related to culture. And then within culture, your gender gets assigned and gets acculturated. So you'll actually find that different cultures have different ways of expressing their emotions. And then males and females in each culture get um, socialized into expressing themselves in different ways. So it's probably more complex than just saying it's men and women. It's about looking at how, as we grow up, Our social environment creates what is acceptable behavior and what is not acceptable behavior. And so we learn how to be human beings within that framework of culture. And I think that in itself is a fascinating question. So gender happens in a social context. And so people will learn different behaviors depending on where they grow up and who is their role models and what they've been taught is the right way for them to behave. Right. So culture is is a far stronger indicator than gender. Yes. And as you say, gender is is defined within a culture. Exactly. Fantastic. Eleanor, really interesting stuff. I love it. And I love how practical your advice is. It's it's really implementable. But the, the trick for me and the trick for anyone who's listening is having the courage to do it and remembering to practice it often enough so that it's there when you need it. I I love all the advice you've given. Now, I've got three really quick questions to finish with you. Are you ready for these? Mm -hmm. Okay. Eleanor, with all of the things that you've done in your professional career, I would like you to tell us what's the one single achievement that you're most proud of? It is probably writing that book, Difficult People Made Easy. (laughs) It took me seven years and it it feels like it took all my wisdom and turned it into something that people can pick up and use. What was it like that moment that you saw the book for the very first time in its published form? It was pretty amazing. The day I found it in an airport bookshop was (sighs) the day that, you know, that I had aspired to that I didn't really think would happen. Uh, So that was the day that I really relate to. It was real because it just took so long to get it out there and then suddenly it was there. Fabulous. All right. Question number two, what's the one thing you wish everyone knew? That conflict does not have to be negative. Conflict is a hugely creative experience if we take the right approach to it. 
Oh, fantastic. That's great. And very last question, Eleanor, what's the one thing you're working on improving in yourself right now? My networking skills. I am a raving introvert and I'm at a stage of career where I need to do more of that networking and putting myself out there. So for me, that is the thing that's going to take me to the next level of success. Oh, that's a really good one. You know, you've you've hit on one of mine. I'm a raving introvert as well, Eleanor, and I've come to the conclusion that I need to network in an introverted kind of way. I, I don't think it will ever work for me to go to those very extroverted networking events where people run around and talk to each other briefly and throw their cards around. That will never work for me. And and I've tried that a very small number of times and hated every second of it. So I've decided, I don't know whether it's a cop-out or not, that I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to network and, and create contacts in, in my very own introverted kind of way. Is that the way that you're going to approach it? Or are you going to pretend to be an extrovert for this? No, I'm not going to pretend to be an extrovert. I see the internet as opening up the world to introverts. And I think it's fabulous, the sorts of things that we can do in putting information and building relationships and yet at the same time not having to go into those sorts of high energy environments like networking meetings, which don't work for introverts. You're so right. The internet has opened up the world to introverts. I like that, Eleanor. That's very wise. So I hope that um, we'll be able to see more introverts out there making the most of it. (laughs) It's been an extroverted world up until now. We're about (laughs) to take over. Eleanor Shakiba, thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you very much for chatting to me. And that was Eleanor Shakiba. I love the directness, the practicality of Eleanor's advice. She has a prescribed response for each of the common behaviours difficult people might throw our way. But the challenge is, of course, turning that knowledge the advice Eleanor gave into skills that you can apply when you need to. I'll put a link to where you can find Eleanor and her book on the podcast page for this episode. I will also, as always, share the lessons I took from today's chat. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. You're welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn or by emailing me directly, david at teams.guru. We're on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I'll be back next week for another episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.